Welcome to Happy Hour with the Three Tomatoes. And no matter what time of the day you're listening, shouldn't every hour be happy? Cheers and enjoy the episode. Before we start our episode, let's talk girlfriend to girlfriend with a special message and a great offer from our friends at Pulse. We all know that when we go through menopause, we lose estrogen. But what we often don't talk about is how this can lead to intimacy issues. Sex can become uncomfortable and even painful. You may have tried personal lubricants and were turned off by the sticky mess. Well, now there's a new line of awesome personal lubes that were created by a rock star team of women. Doctors, engineers, chemists, and sociologists. You'll love Aloe Ah, a luxuriously smooth silicone-based lube with soothing aloe and vitamin E. And H2O is a natural water-based moisturizing lube made with hydrating organic chia extract. No sticky, icky mess here. You'll also love the Pulse Lube Warming Device. Trust us, ladies. The Pulse products are game changers when it comes to great sex at any age. And here's the best part. Get 15% off all lubricants with code 3TPulse15. Go to lovemypulse.com. The Daily News was run by a man named, um, they called him Captain Patterson. And um, Joseph, it was Joseph Patterson, and he did not want to publish anything by a woman. Didn't, he was really against anything that was by a woman and anything that had a female-esque, you know, anything like that. So he was not going to publish that comic. That's Laura Rorman talking about the early struggles faced by her grandmother, Dale Messick, the creator of Brenda Star Reporter, to get her comic strip in the newspapers. What a story. Listen in. I'm Cheryl Benton, and our guest today is playwright Laura Rorman, who also happens to be the granddaughter of Dale Mezick, the creator of the iconic cartoon strip Brenda Star Reporter, which was in syndication for 40 years and at its peak was included in 250 newspapers and read by more than 60 million readers. That's amazing. Laura has written a play, Reporter Girl, that tells the story of her grandmother. So, Laura, welcome. Hi. Yeah, <laughs> Thank you for having me. Oh, I'm so excited. And I'm so excited because last night I actually had a chance to see a staged reading of your play, which we're going to talk about um, in a little bit, too. But first of all, I, I just have to say that for so many women like me who grew up with Brenda Starr. She really was an idol and she was, a, I think, a really positive role model too for so many of us because here she was, she was beautiful, single most of the time, successful professional woman. She had exotic adventures and steamy romances and throughout the decades, you know, that was all through the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, even well into the 80s. And when that kind of role wasn't really typical for women and certainly not in the comics, for sure. So it's I'm so excited to have you here to tell us about your grandmother. And I know you were very, very close to her. So can we start with how did she become a cartoonist? Because that certainly wasn't a typical career path for women in the 1930s. Well, she um, she was born in um, 1906 and um, grew up in Indiana. And she apparently was um, always super creative and wanted to do, she was one of those um, kids who wanted to do everything. She wanted to be an ice skater. She um, 
was just, a, you know, super creative. I think she even put on plays in her attic and charged for tickets. She was kind of had this entrepreneurial spirit and she was obsessed with um, adventure stories as a kid and also um, very good artist. And she, her parents were very poor and her mom was a milliner, which is a hat maker and a dressmaker actually. And um, her father was a sign created um, signs. So she came from already a very artistic family and, um, and then started coming up with um, ideas for a comic strip. And it was, um, she also loved the work of Nell Brinkley. Have you heard of Nell Brinkley? No, I haven't. Um, so Nell Brinkley was um, at the time an, um, a, another female artist, and she had she was in some syndication as well, um, and she did uh, had beautiful, girl, very girly drawings, and mm -hmm. so I think the combination and a lot of little girls looked up to these um, um, this kind of art at the time in um, the early the early twenties. So, you know, 19, you know, 1918 to the early 20s. And that's kind of where her inspiration came from. She then, after high school, she immediately um, started doing art and uh, was doing greeting cards uh, and, wow. and worked in Chicago. She went to the Art Institute of Chicago and had a job doing greeting cards. And her um, kind of famous story that's that you know is is in publication is that she her boss wanted to uh change her salary from 33 dollars a week to 30 dollars a week so he could hire another girl and when she fought this he said you'll never be worth more than 30 dollars a week miss messick and she stormed out of the office and it was 19 wow it was in the middle um, or was this 1933? It was then, anyway, it was in the middle of the depression. It was not a time to quit your job no matter what. And she quit her job and had to, you know, go with her head sinking down back to her family in Indiana. She had four brothers and they um, converted a barn and turned it into an art studio for her. And she then um, got freelance jobs and was supporting the whole family with her free freelance jobs as a greeting card designer. And one of the greeting card design companies decided to bring her to New York City for a job. So that's her story. That's how she got to New York City. And all the while, she was kind of working on these, these ideas on the side. And the first one was um, a mermaid cartoon where they lived under the sea. And one of the big, strong ones was called Streamline Babies, which I wrote about in the play. Right. Um, she so she had she had like three or four comic ideas um, very well on their way where she'd really thought them out thought them through and then um, that's you know then that kind of brings us up to to Brenda Starr. That's just an amazing story about you know her art and the greeting cards and also I love how supportive her family was of her. That's that's a wonderful. Uh, she, had, she she really did have a very supportive her mom and dad were um incredibly proud of her and she was the only girl in the family and just adored that's so way. wonderful and you know and that also wasn't very typical back in those days either because it was usually the boys who were you know giving given the opportunities to you know have careers and succeed so, so now tell us so she then she got to new york 
Yeah, she got to meet. Okay, so yeah, let's hear that part of how Brenda Starr gets created. She got to New York and she moved um, into Tudor City. I'm from California, so it's crazy that um, growing up, I didn't know... I really didn't know these stories in depth. And now I'm kind of, now I, I've done so much research. I know, I know a lot, but growing up, um, I didn't even know New York. I grew up on a mountain in the middle of nowhere. So, so to come here and find out that she, she was hanging around 42nd street, um, uh, the art studio where she met my grandpa, um, who was an art assistant, um, used to take up much of, um, grand central. Wow. So it was along where, um, all those stores now are, I think, yes. public. That's where that's where this art studio was, and that was where all the great artists at the time were coming in and getting their brushes and their paints. And um, you know, the of the collection that my grandfather, we just got my grandfather's collection just recently, and he has um, peanuts, um, Terry and the Pirates, uh, Batman, everything, a collection oh. of signed original of all these. Um, artists that were coming in there. Oh, how wonderful. Oh, what a wonderful thing to have. Now, what time frame was this? Was this late this 19, late 30s, 1940s? So she came, so she came to New York City for this job at Freeman Art Supply um, to do the greeting cards. And she was taking art classes on the side. And she took a class with um, CD Bachelor who was the political cartoonist that ended up being her boyfriend and definitely was able to introduce her to some, some of the right people. But also he is the person who gave her the information on the contest um, at the, the daily news was having for looking for new cartoonists because it was, it was a big thing back then. I mean, cartooning was um, the, one of the main forms of entertainment. She sent in um, her idea for the, for the comic and what this actually looked like was some form of very close to Brenda Starr. I made a lot up in the play because I, I wasn't sure, was the name already formed? Was the character completely formed? But whatever it was, she did have some tweaks from the editor who was there, was a woman, Molly Slott, who tweaked some of it and told her to come back in with some tweaks. She did. She submitted it and it won the contest and it was the most popular and it was the only one of all the strips that were in that contest that was turned ended up being turned into a um, real comic. Wow. That is, that's quite a story. The daily news was run by a man named, um, they called him Captain Patterson and um, Joseph, it was Joseph Patterson and he did not want to publish anything by a woman. He was really against anything that was, by a woman and anything that had a female-esque, you know, anything like that. So he was not going to publish that comic. What happened is it got, it first got published in another paper. And so then it became very popular in all these other papers. And, you know, by even like in two years later, it was in 20 papers. And three years later, it was in, you know, everyone was wanting this comic. And, um, and it's not until I believe that he died that it appeared in the daily news. Oh my gosh. That's but it was the daily news. It was the daily news that started, did start it. But she, she must've, you know, being a woman in that time frame and one being a cartoonist, which there couldn't have been that many females doing what she was doing. And just to be part of the newspaper industry, which 
even to this day is still very male oriented. Um, she must have faced a lot of resistance along the way. Were there other, you know, examples of how she pushed through that? Or are you aware of other situations? Well, I know, I know that she kind of had to toe a line and, um, I, it's it's in the I I wrote about it more in the play than you know because some of these things mm -hmm. I start to forget but I did write about it in the play that she, it wasn't a very acknowledged strip it was a very popular strip as you know and you might remember but it wasn't very acknowledged for her her art and her storyline and her abilities so it's underrated is the yes. word and um and it felt and if that feels unfair which says her granddaughter looking at the bigger picture and realizing sometimes the frustration that I even feel for her mm -hmm. is because imagine number one, that she didn't have the rights. She had to sell away her rights to it right away when she, when she got the job for um, the Tribune. Mm. And number two was that it was, it was, you know, such a, such a boys club that she didn't get the recognition she really deserved. And there was a lot of um, angst, um, and jealousy. So, because she was as popular, she was on the level of the most popular comics. You know, there were, there were a handful that were in, um, over 200 newspapers and that's, you know, Beetle Bailey, um, Dick Tracy, right. Terry and the pirates, but she was right. She was right in there. Brenda Starr was in there with the most popular comics. There's, there were like three that exceeded that you know, of that level, Peanuts. Um, I'm trying to think of some of the ones that exceeded yeah. that, that level. So, so we're, t we're talking that she was in, you know, she, she was right in there with the big guys. And even, um, even recently I read an article in Vanity Fair that um, was all about how it was, how the cartooning in the 1940s, it was all set in Connecticut and it was this boys club and that the women were the wives who kept their laundry. And uh, it was frustrating to me to read this in 2018 and see that it's still a boys club. And they mentioned Brenda Starr and they mentioned, they didn't mention my grandma's name. They just mentioned that, oh, there was this other comic that was an adventure comic about a reporter, Brenda Starr. Oh and, my gosh, and, that's and, awful. And so, and yeah, and this whole thing being a boys club and didn't mention that, oh, there was a woman in there. It wasn't just a boys club. And, you know, her comic was more popular than the comic that they were talking about. Well, what she accomplished was certainly extraordinary. And there are just, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of her fans like me and so many other women who, as I said, we just... We grew up with Brenda Starr and she'll just, you know, she'll live in our hearts forever. That's for sure. So let's talk a little bit about the Brenda Starr, the character, because she she was always so glamorous and incredibly stylish. And one of the things was it was so great how her wardrobe kept up with the times because, it you know, she spanned so many decades. But she, of course, she always stayed the same age, but her clothes always kept up with the current decade. Um, so first of all, was there an inspiration for Brenda Starr, the character and how did Dale Messick keep her fashionable over all those years? Well, the character was based on, um, a debutante of the era named Brenda Fraser, 
and a mixture of that and Rita Hayworth. Yes. And, um, Dale was obsessed with fashion. She read all the fashion magazines and she kept very up to date. So that's how the fashions were so, um, you know, hot couture of the moment was just, you know, Dale's fascination with um, fashion. And her mother was, um, you know, a dressmaker. So that kind of had some, that had something to do with it. Well, that's great. Cause that's one of the things I know that those of us who loved the, the series always just loved how she was dressed too. And of course she also had a lot of romances, which was so terrific. But of course the enduring one was always that mystery man, Basil St. John with the, with the eye patch and the orchids that kept him alive. Was, was there um, an inspiration for, Basil, do you think or no? Well, I have my theories and I don't know if my theories <laughs> are, are true, but I think that Basil was based on um, the man I talk about in the play, the, the CD Bachelor. That's what uh -huh. I think uh -huh. was this. They look similar and he was tall, dark and handsome and intelligent and I, I just I, I I felt that and but I don't know that I got a clear answer from my grandma about it and she said that she she said she based the look of of the um mystery man on an assistant who came to work for her a male assistant who was handsome who had a patch on his eye ah that's what she that's what okay. she said but so I, the mystery man kind of remains a mystery. <laughs> exactly. She was. She really did want to keep. I, I think her secrets about how she came up with some of her things because I was asking her about that, and I I felt I was putting it together, and she didn't. She didn't. She didn't necessarily. She didn't really say yes or no. If that uh, was true. Yeah, that's so great. So one of the things you know over the years, you know, of reading it, he would always kind of come in and out of her life, and then. In later years, she actually did end up marrying him and they had a child and then there was a whole soap opera story around that. So I, I always kind of wondered why after all those years, she decided to marry them off. And then did she ever regret that she did that, do you think? <laughs> second half of the play, it's all about how she wanted, she just so wanted to do that for Brenda. And it was Molly Slot that was keeping her from doing it. Uh -huh. and, um, she planned the wedding. She she wanted what I think that it was is that Dale just wanted to see that wedding. You right. know, she wanted the dress. She wanted she wanted the frills. She wanted the fun of it. And Molly Slot said that will ruin this. Don't do that. And um, she you know so when Molly Slot died, that's what Dale did. <laughs> she married Brenda Starr off, and there was a lot of fanfare. And um, I don't know. I don't I don't know that she regretted. I know that the wedding was a big, big deal contest for people to send in wedding dresses for Brenda. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it was a, it was um, draw the wedding dress and then the winner will um, will, you know, she'll she'll emulate the dress. Oh, you had a very special relationship with her did, growing up. Did you know what she had done or at what point did you come to realize she who she was and the, what she had created and then how did you decide to turn her story into a play 
grew up on a mountain in California in the middle. I mean, I, my mouth doesn't like it. I say this, but it really is in the middle of nowhere. It's a um, 20 minute drive to the nearest post office. So um, where I went to school was a little tiny, little tiny school. And Brenda Starr was not in our local papers. And as a young child, um, until I was 11, um, Dale lived in Chicago and we lived, we lived in Northern California. So I would see her on occasion when she'd come to visit one, you know, once a year for a week. And then when we'd go to Chicago and visit her once a year for about a week until I was, until I was 11, I on her visits to come see me, she felt very out of place in our little country house. <laughs> um, as you can imagine, she would bring out her stuff. You know, she was just dressed to the nines, fancy, and she was still doing Brenda Star then. And um, and she was a very fun, wickedly funny grandma, and would tell these crazy stories. And you know, everything had a had kind of a twist, and you know, just the stories were very magical as as, the, as a kid. And then when we would go to Chicago, my goodness, I was just overwhelmed with what her apartment looked like. Looking out on Lake Michigan, um, the room I stayed when I remember was gold. Everything in it was gold, and it had a little art easel, and. On, oh, yeah, it was very special. And so was, she, so she lived a very Brenda Star kind she of did, life. She did, yeah. Yes. Like. It was very fancy. So we would go from this country life to this fancy life, and I, and I, and all I knew was that I just knew something was different about her. Um, but you know, when you're when it's like that, you, it just seems normal that you know this person we'd go this grandma that we'd go visit she was just my grandma right so I so I never thought of it as weird but I'd walk in and she'd be getting interviewed from the press um a few times um uh, I can remember her going into her closet and putting on her clothes and she had giant furs and um you know she just obviously she would have an amazing closet and so yeah. our time was she was a lot of fun dress-up time and um and I liked to draw too. And I had a closeness with her and kind of a fun, easygoing uh, relationship with my grandma. And when I was, um, so then she moved to California when I was 11 and she had suddenly retired from Brenda Starr. And, and we had a different relationship with her because she suddenly had all this time on her hands that she didn't, you know, she was so busy doing Brenda Starr. So can you imagine doing it for 40 years and then being um, retired? Yeah, so that she, had been difficult. Yeah. So she was trying to, and she was still, she, so she did all kinds of different art things. And then she got a little studio and she was in our, um, our local town where we lived. And I can remember going to her art studio after school and visiting with her. And, um, you know, I just had this, I, I just had this fun relationship with my grandma. She would draw pictures of all my friends oh. and, and me. And she drew me at every stage of my life. We have, we have, um, and she would always say she couldn't get me. And it was, it would frustrate me because she could draw my brother and she couldn't draw me. And, um, and you know, she's, she's such a perfectionist with her fashion and beauty was, she was very obsessed with fashion and beauty. That was kind of hard to be, I can imagine to be her daughter, my mom would be really hard and to be the granddaughter, even it was kind of hard because it was kind of difficult because you were sort of held up to this aesthetic. Yes. If yes. I, it, the only other way to put it is, is that I never felt 
you know, I never felt pretty enough. I never felt, you know, and, um, and so there was that, there was a little bit of that with my grandma. Um, and, and, you know, we kind of had this child uh, grandmother relationship and she, she always saw that I was creative. And when I was about 20, she started talking to me about doing her life story. And I was just too young to, I was still in college, but she was, she had been working on her biography. That's how it started. She'd been working on her, um, her autobiography and with, um, another writer. And there were all these stories written down. And she said, then she stopped working with her and she sort of turned her attention on me kind of, kind of, um, do you want to take this over? It's a big responsibility and this project over. And I, um, I didn't know. I really, I didn't know if I wanted to do that. Um, and I went to college and I was studying international relations and French and I had lived in France and I kind of had my own, um, <laughs> like little mini Brenda star life. I had, um, so, so I was getting, in some ways I was that person and I was very adventurous and, um, I would run, you know, I would run off and do these crazy things and um, things that my grandmother didn't get to do because she was busy writing Brenda Starr right. in, in that age. So she didn't get to go and travel the world and do these things. So I was traveling the world and having these adventures. And I can remember one of the trips to Paris. I ended up living in Paris three different times, sort of back to back. I would come back and do a semester of school and then I'd go work in France and um, I could speak French and, you know, it was, it was just a very fun time in my life. And then I, one of the trips, I bought her a ring that she wore forever. And it was this giant plastic ring. It was this giant emerald green plastic ring. And it was, I just knew my grandma so well. So I knew she would love it. <laughs> she, and she did. And I don't know where that ring is now, but it was, you know, it was nothing special. It was a $20 ring and she could pull it off. That was, oh, that was that's great. That was Dale. And so then she, um, so yeah, I had this sort of biography sitting around. Um, and when I was in college at the very end of school, I, I, um, was in a school play and then the woman who wrote the play, I became friends with her and I found out, Oh, I could take a playwriting class. And then I just decided to turn a family story, not anything to do with my grandma into a play. And I came home and I was telling the family about it. And I was so excited about my newfound hobby, I guess. <laughs> and I, you know, cause I had been busy, I'd been, a, in, I'd been pursuing doing business kind of, or, or, or a different kind of degree. And, um, and every time I would come home and tell my grandma about my schooling, I would say, oh, I did this report on economics or I did this. And she would look at me like, aren't, aren't there people who do that better than you? <laughs> <laughs> aren't, aren't you like 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 aren't you creative like what like why are you doing business and then it took wow. it's oh. great so she really she really saw the creative person in you when you didn't see it yourself it oh yeah she yeah. was she was pulling she was really pulling it out of me and so then oh, in the play she I came home and I told her and she was at this point she was already kind of um had had some strokes I believe or she was my memory of it is that she was in her bed and that I was sitting by her bed telling her animated, you know, blah, 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 the play. And she grabbed my hand and she stared at me and she said, you need to write a play about Brenda Starr. And it was like, uh, she didn't even hear that the play that I was telling her about, she just right. wanted to write this play about Brenda Starr. And I, 
I felt kind of, kind of like, why do I have to write about Brenda Starr? And so I didn't right away, but I had done some research um, on her life for my work. My first job out of college was, I ended up not being a playwright right away. I, my first job was for a news magazine, actually. And I wasn't a reporter, but I worked in the marketing side. And um, they were doing um, they were doing some sort of story about, it was called Brilliant Careers. And I ended up getting um, to write an article about Dale. So I came and interviewed her. I didn't end up, the, the article didn't end up running, but I had done all the research. So I'd sat with, I'd sat with my grandma and I'd written as much as I could. I mean, I was still really young. I was, you know, 20, then I was 24, but I, you know, I wrote quite a bit. And um, then years later, when I went to graduate school for playwriting in New York City, uh, they asked us to write a historical play that had to, we had to show our research. So I decided, that's when I decided to start writing about Brenda Starr. Oh, that's great. Yeah, and it came, and as soon as I started writing it in the dialogue form with characters, it just came to life much more than as a journalistic piece, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I think the only way a journalistic piece could work for me writing it is if I wrote it as her granddaughter, not as a journalist. And how did it evolve into the play that it that it is? And where you know, what do you hope to happen with the play? I know we we want to see it get on Broadway for sure. I know. So the so the play's been you know one form of development um, that started in graduate school. A long time ago and then um, I've had many readings and a lot of close calls with this play where um, second stage was interested um, it was in a comic book theater festival I think a theater in California wanted it um, at one point there's there's definitely something in me that must mu- it must be like I'm not putting this out there until it's 100% ready So it's getting close, though. And, um, you know, the next step is definitely I want to see it on an off-Broadway or Broadway level. And then it could also be, you know, an eight-part miniseries, too, from there. Well, it's such it's such a great, great story. And not only your grandmother's story, but the Brenda Starr story, but your story is is a wonderful story story of, um, you know, carrying on your grandmother's legacy. And I know she's got to be looking down, (laughs) cheering you on. And I'm sure you feel that uh, with each step of this that you take. So that is terrific. We wish you so much luck with this project. And, um, you know, I'm just, just so happy that you're continuing to do this. And there was a fabulous exhibit that you just did at the Society of Illustrators with with all of her work and um, it's just wonderful to see her celebrated um, as she should be. So Laura, thank you so much for joining us today. This is just such a thrill to talk to you and to keep Brenda Starr alive for so many of us who loved her for so many years. Oh, good. I'm so glad. I, it was, you know, it's been thrilling to be um, a part of this and if I've had any little little role in in helping to keep her memory alive and to um keep you know remind people that there are trailblazers then you know women telling women's stories is important